Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 7. We dealt with the first six verses last week and Paul starts off in chapter 7 verse 1 giving us a little analogy. He talks about three things, a man, a woman, and a law. The man and the woman were married and the law held them in this union. From the context it appears that the woman desired to be free from the man. But she was obedient to the law and would not divorce him. We can imagine that he was cruel, that he was a hard man, that he was a rough taskmaster, that he was narrow, no grace in that man at all. And she wanted to be free, but she could not be free until he died. So there was a fourth element in this story. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman wanted to be married to a new man, but she couldn't be married to the Lord Jesus Christ as long as her first husband was alive. And we're told there's a principle here that a person is under the law as long as they're alive. That the only way to get out from under the law is death, till death do us part. This woman wanted to be free from that law of marriage, but death was the only answer. Either she had to die, or the husband had to die, or the law would have to cease to govern marriage. Now, most commentators think that the law in some way died that its authority or its jurisdiction ceased over the believer. Clearly what happened in that story is that the husband died, just as the analogy indicated was necessary. The husband died and the woman was then free from the law to marry another man. So the question is, who is the husband? Some people say, well, it really wasn't the husband that died, it was the law, but Paul couldn't say it was the law that died, so he said it was the husband. And that's very confusing for Paul to be that confused. So we know what died. When we go to chapter 6, the chapter before this, we find out the thing that died was our flesh. That when Christ was crucified, part of him was crucified. Not his mind, his spirit, his soul, his body was crucified. And we know that we were baptized into Christ's body, and being baptized into his body, we too died with him, buried with him, planted with him, and raised with him. So we share his death. That which died in Christ died in us. Our flesh ceased with his flesh. And so the flesh, the part that we were married to, the part that caused us to live in sin, the part that ruled and dominated us, that part died, the flesh. Now, being free from the flesh, we're free to be married to Jesus Christ. So now we are wed to Christ. He becomes our body. We have a new body. The Bible speaks of the church as the body of Christ. We've been baptized into his body, and the Bible said we've become members of his body. So we no longer have the old body of flesh. The Bible says we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So I've experienced the spiritual circumcision when this body that has been the dominant factor causing me to sin, I was cut out of it, cut away from it, disjoined from it, which was that which made me a part of Adam. In other words, I, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In Adam, I received a body of flesh. The body of flesh is the seat of sin, not my soul, not an old nature, the body of flesh. So when I was placed into Christ, the body of flesh died, that which connected me to Adam. It was buried with Christ's body, and when he was raised with a new body, I was raised with a new body. Only my body is the body of Christ. So I now have a glorified body, the body of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm now totally in Christ. 
I'm not two men. I don't have an old man and a new man. I'm one man now. I am the new man. I am not the old man in any sense. The old man was crucified with Christ and passed away and ceased and no longer exists. Now, I've already gone far beyond the things that you've heard and taught and believed. Already this is strange to you. Already you're saying, I can't believe that because... Now, you don't say, I can't believe that because the Scripture teaches differently. You say, I don't believe that. I can't believe that because that's not my experience. And that's exactly what's gotten everyone into trouble. You know, when I preach this at the prison, they believe it and love it, and there's no problem. The prisoners love this. You know why? Because the bottom line of this is this. Romans chapter 6, three times. You're dead, your life was hid with Christ and God, and you're free from sin. You're no longer the old you. You're no longer subject to the old dictates and controls. You are now free to sin not. When you got out of this prison, you can go and not continue in sin. You can walk in holiness because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're brand new. They love it. They believe it. They don't have any trouble with it. Now, he's going to continue tonight with that subject. Now, I, I know that you're having trouble believing something that you don't experience. You're having trouble believing that the body you're sitting therein is dead. So much so that, I think we got a question last week, said, well, that's just spiritually true, right? No. It's as literally true as that Christ's body died. It's the same death. Same death we share. We're not sharing it symbolically. We're sharing the same death in the same grave at the same time. Same literal death. Whenever God told Abraham, said, Abraham... You're the father of a great nation. Abraham was, the Bible said his body was as good as dead. He could not produce seed. Sarah, you're the mother of a great nation. Sarah had never had children in all of her life. Even when she was producing eggs, her eggs were gone. There weren't any left in her body. She no longer produced eggs. They no longer were joined in union as a married couple. He was 99 years old. That was a history for them. And Abraham would go up to strangers and they say, Abraham, who are you? He said, I am the father of a great nation. I am walking this land for my sons and my wife's sons here. We own all of this land. Abraham, you had to buy a piece of land to bury your kinfolks on. How could you say that you're the owner of this land? You had to buy a piece. Oh, no, I own all this land. Everything the sole of my feet have touched is mine. And I have my seed or as the sand on the seashore innumerable. You can't count them. Well, Abraham, I don't see it. He said, I don't care if you don't see it. God said it was true. And God calleth those things which be not as though they were. My job is not to see it. My job is to believe it. And they said, but Abraham, isn't that a little foolish to believe something you don't see? Well, it would be if God hadn't said it. And yet today, Christians have trouble believing what God said because it's not their experience. I just wonder if we would believe what he says if we'd experience something new. Like deliverance from sin. Like complete deliverance from sin. Like not sinning anymore. Which is the whole point of this. To be delivered from sin. So we come down to chapter 7. Verse 6, and let's read that again. Well, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, look at it. When we were in the flesh, that's past tense, right? Are you in the flesh right now? Not according to this. 
when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our old nature. Is that what it said? What does it say? Work in our members. That's your hand, feet, tongues, eyes, ears, nose, sex, organs. Work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now, right now at the present, we are delivered from the law. We're delivered from the law. That law that bound us, like the woman was bound by the law to her husband. We're delivered from the law. That being dead, that thing, that entity being dead, wherein we were held. The thing that held us, the thing that the law bound us to. The law governed a relationship, a contract between two individuals. One of those parties died. It was not the woman. She's going to be alive to be married to someone else. What died was the flesh, the old man. That being dead where we're held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So this, this freedom from that thing that died enables us to serve God, not out of the letter of the law, but out of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has made me free from the law of sin and death. Hey, there's great possibilities here. Now he says, verse 7, continuing with the new material tonight. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Now, why did this question arise? It arose because Paul knew that his detractors would say, Paul, Paul, you are saying that the law is evil because the woman wanted to get out from under its jurisdiction. You're saying that the Christian gets out from under the law, therefore the law must be undesirable. Paul in the rest of this chapter is going to point out it's not because the law is bad. It's because the law could not accomplish its intended purpose, that is to make a man holy. Not because the law failed, but because the flesh failed to obey the law. He's going to point out that not only did the flesh fail to obey the law, but the flesh cannot obey the law. The flesh is completely enslaved to sin and therefore, the law is inadequate to actually deliver a man from sin. The law holds up a standard of righteousness, but it cannot deliver that righteousness in the practical experience of an individual. Paul is promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ above the law based on this argument. The law called for righteousness and couldn't produce it. The gospel calls for righteousness and produces it in the individual. Not just imputed righteousness, but practical righteousness worked out in the everyday experience of the believer. If this is not true, that is, if a man can be a Christian and not walk in holiness, Paul's argument falls flat. If a man can be saved and not be delivered from the acts of sin, then Paul's gospel is weaker than the law because that's where the law was. Preaching something it couldn't deliver. Yes, sir. Prisoners love this. They love to hear they're free from sin. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law said thou shalt not covet. Paul said, no, the law is not sin. He said, in fact, the law is very meaningful to me. He said, I picked the law up and I read thou shalt not covet. You see, the law did not say thou shalt not lust. It just said thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, oxen, and so forth. So Paul picked that up and he began to meditate on the law. Thou shalt not covet. As he meditated on the law, he understood his own lust. He understood his own carnal drives. And so Paul, using that law, was delighted. He thought, man, this is wonderful. I have the law of God. I can now walk in righteousness and holiness. I know what to do. I have the light, the truth. 
So he said, no, I, I delight in the law of God. I, I, I found it a wonderful thing. I, had, I wouldn't even know what lust was except the law had said thou shalt not covet. But sin, and the sin is the actor here, verse 8, sin taking occasion by the commandment. By Paul's knowledge of the commandment, sin saw an opportunity. Sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That's fleshly sin and indulgence. Paul said, whenever the commandment came to my understanding, sin used that opportunity to awaken lust, concupiscence in me. He says, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul said that in his experience, historically, at one point, he was alive. He was not dead in trespasses and sins. He was alive. He had no knowledge of the law. He had no sense of any responsibility before God. He was not called on the carpet for any guilt because he had no guilt. Oh, he's probably three years old, you know, maybe four. Just a young fellow. The commandment hadn't come to his consciousness yet. He had no knowledge of good and evil yet. At that point, he said, I was alive without the law. He said, well, I don't believe that. I believe kids are born sinners. That's why you believe that a six-month-old suckling child is despised by God, and God holds that child at fault and at blame, and God is delighted to see the destruction of the damnation of that six-year-old. Is that what you believe? He said, no, I don't believe that at all. I know what you believe, regardless of what you say you believe. You believe that children are without fault and blame before God, and they're excused. When they die, that's what you believe. That's what all Christians believe. See, you don't believe that children are dead in trespasses and sins at two years old. You don't believe that. Your theology might have something in it that says that, but in your heart and in your soul, you don't believe that. You just got messed up with some theology somewhere and say things that don't fit your belief at all. I don't know of anyone that thinks that God is angry with the babies every day, like he is with the wicked. That he laughs and mocks when their calamity comes, as he does with the sinner when his calamity comes. He says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, Jesus said something similar to the Pharisees, John 15. They said to him, well, the way you talk, you call us sinners. He said, listen. He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin, but now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. To him that knoweth do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. Ephesians chapter 2, where it speaks of being dead in trespasses and sins, it gives a list of the acts of sin committed by the individual. It doesn't speak of death and trespass and sins as a born condition, but as an earned condition that resulted from you seeing the commandments of God and violating those commandments even in your early life. And as you grow older, you violated more. And as a result of that, you became personally dead in your own trespasses and in your own sins. Not a birth condition at all. So simple. He goes on. He says, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life. God gave the commandment with a promise of eternal life for keeping it. You see, the commandment said this, 
This do and thou shalt live. Know what he said? Do these commandments and you'll live. The commandments promised life for those who kept them. You say, but no one can be saved by their works. They could if their works were perfect. They could if they never broke the commandments. You say, but everyone has. I know that. But that does not nullify that the law was ordained to life. No one has ever gained life under the law. But it was still ordained to life. That was still the character and nature of the law. Now God's intention was to use the law to expose our sin to bring us to Christ. But the end result of the law's application is life. Amen. It's life having been brought to Christ. He says the commandment was ordained unto life, but he says this, and I found it to be unto death. He said, I didn't get life when I understood the commandments. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, that is sin used the coming of the commandment as an occasion, deceived me, sin deceived me, and by it the coming of the commandment slew me. Paul has said this, he said, those of you who object to what I'm saying, he said, I'm not telling you the law is evil. I'm telling you the law is good. It gives life. It came to give life. But when it came, sin used that occasion to kill me. It wasn't the law that was sin that killed me. Sin used the coming law. You see, Paul's eventual purpose is to arrive at the conclusion that what Christ has offered is better than what the law offered. That's where he's going. Eventually, he's going to come to the place to, to point out that Christ accomplished what the law couldn't. That's where he's going in chapter 8. But he's not going to get there by saying the law is inadequate. The law is inferior. The law is lesser. Set this law aside and institute Christ. He's not going to say that. He's going to say the job of the law was to give life, but it failed to do it, not because it was a bad law, not because it was improperly given. It failed to do it because the flesh over which the law ruled was incapable of obeying the law. And because of that, Men are dead in trespasses and sins. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That happened in his history. In his history, he was not born in that condition. Bible's a wonderful book. Throws a whole lot of light on sermons and commentaries. Amen. He said, deceive me and by it slew me. It killed him, deceived him. How did it deceive him? The commandment said, this do and thou shalt live. He tried it. Instead of uh, living, he died. Wherefore the law is holy. He's going to uphold the law. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And it's just. And it's good. No problem there. Was then that which is good made death unto me? He's going back to his argument again. To this accusation his contenders would offer. Uh, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. He said the law wasn't what killed me. But sin that it might appear sin. Sin working death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So he says, no, it wasn't the law again. He just emphasized once again, it was the coming law. The law was the occasion. But it was sin that killed me. Verse 14. He kind of changes the subject now. For we know that the law is spiritual. Think about it. The law is spiritual. In other words, the law is not about carnal things. It is a spiritual law. It governs the human spirit. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
Now, Paul is speaking on behalf of the human race, not just talking about his own experience. He's not talking about his present condition. Paul is using himself as a representative of the human race. For instance, in verse 9, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, he's talking about his past tense condition there. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the motion of sin which by the law did work in our members. So the rest of this chapter is an unfolding of that past experience of Paul, which would be the past experience of all Christians, which would be the condition of all unregenerate natural men that are born into this world. So Paul is not talking about the present reality, the way he's personally living. He's representing the entire human race in what he's saying. Now the reason I emphasize that is most commentaries believe that Romans chapter 7 is talking about a Christian failing to live righteously. Most commentaries think that Romans chapter 7 is the normal experience of a Christian every day. That's what they teach. I find that appalling. I find that totally confusing. I was taught that thoroughly for years and years in my early life. And it wasn't until after I got out of Bible college and began to read the Bible for myself that I discovered the truth of the subject. So he says, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, here's one of those words that concepts have been attached to, carry a little baggage with them. Carnal, that means fleshly. Fleshly means wicked and sinful. So Paul says he's carnal. That means he's got some kind of sinful nature. Maybe his substance is evil. Uh, there's something there that's uh, uh, satanic and devilish. He's carnal. Uh, no, carnal is not sinful. Carnal is not sinful, necessarily. Let me read you some verses on it here. The word carnal is used 10, 11, 12 times, something like that. Hebrews 9, 10, he calls the Mosaic ordinance governing the everyday life of Israel. He talks about carnal ordinances. So he calls the ordinances God gave to the children of Israel in a temple observance to be carnal ordinances. So is he saying they're sinful ordinances? No, he's just saying these are the ordinances you observe on earth in the flesh while the true ordinances in heaven are something to be observed later. These are carnal, earthly, temporal ordinances. Hebrews seven sixteen, the divine commandment under which the priests were inaugurated were called carnal commandments. That was what God gave them to be inaugurated as a priest. 1 Corinthians 9, 11, it speaks of the remuneration given to a minister of the gospel. This would include food and clothing and stuff. He said, he said, if I'm blessed and if I reap your carnal things. So when Paul went to minister, all the believers heaped up on him carnality. And he was thankful for it. You say, what kind of carnality? Money, a pair of shoes, a pair of pants, a hat, raincoat, blanket. That's the carnal stuff that the Christians put on him. What is carnal? It just means earthly, worldly, stuff that has to do with the flesh, just flesh. Now, flesh obviously can be sinful flesh, and carnality can obviously be a mind set on sinful fleshly things, but not necessarily. That's why the Bible, a search of words, really helps us out in understanding some of these things. Uh, Romans 15, 27, speaking in the need of the congregation of the saints to support its ministers, said, For the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things. Their duty also is to minister under them in carnal things. So the word carnal means natural, tangible, 
earthly. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, which is not a sinful state, we do not war after the flesh. For weapons of our warfare are not carnal, as in natural, as in natural human resources of the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down strongholds. So he's not saying the weapons of our warfare are not sinful. He's saying the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, we're not using our mind. We're not depending on sword in our hand, our gun, our club, our fist. We're not using carnal weapons to overcome the devil. We're using spiritual weapons. So you get the gist of what carnal is in the Bible? So let me say it this way. Adam was created by God carnal. Before he sinned, Adam was carnal. Jesus Christ was carnal in his body of flesh. See, you've used the word one way so much that just shocks you. Why? Because you haven't studied the word of God closely. You've just taken one little narrow definition and used it all your life. All descendants of Adam are carnal. All earthly mammals are carnal. All food is carnal. All houses are carnal. All natural physical needs are carnal. So the word carnal can be used to describe the composition of a person or a thing, or we'll find several verses where it's used to describe one's orientation. You see, when you use it to describe one's orientation, then it takes on a sinful context. In other words, if a man's mind, if he minds earthly things, that's sinful. If he minds carnal things, that's sinful. If a man is carnally minded, it's a man who's got his mind set on fishing boats and guns and houses and tractors and food and Coca-Colas and candy bars and VCRs and clothes and automobiles and his farm and his job and his bank account. That's a carnal man. See, we like to think of a carnal man as somebody that smokes pot and fornicates. But not in the scripture. A carnal man is a man who builds and stores up treasures upon this earth. That's a carnal man. That his mind is focused or fixed. His love is on the physical aspect. You see, a preacher who never sins outwardly, never commits an act of sin, can be a carnal preacher. He can be totally carnally minded. He can get people down the aisle so he can have a count of how many got saved. So we'd have to say he's a carnal preacher. We could see him keeping a record of all that he does and publicizing it to impress other people. Why? He's a carnal preacher. His mind is set on carnal, earthly things. You follow me? Now, there are three usages of carnal. Romans 7, 4, this one. Romans 8, 7, and 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Three occasions, six usage of the word, where it's in a negative way. The carnal state is... Uh, is spoken of as sold under sin and the carnal mind cannot please God. So Adam was a composite of two planes, one carnal and one spiritual. From that point forward, Adam and all his descendants became holy, after he sinned, became holy, carnal, not only in the substance of their body, but they became carnal in the orientation. Why? Because Adam was a body of carnal flesh and he was also a spirit that was united to God in fellowship. When Adam sinned, the Spirit of God departed from Adam. He was cut off from fellowship, and the dominant force in Adam's life became his physical bodily needs. At that point, 
Adam's mind stopped being set on fellowship with God and his mind got focused on his carnal needs. From that point on, all of Adam's descendants come into a carnal world and grow up to be carnally minded, to live carnal existences, satisfying carnal wants, needs, even legitimate needs, and drives and pleasures, so the carnal mind cannot please God, for it is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, that, in other words, my habits, my actions, for that which I do, I allow not. What he's saying is, what I actually do from one moment to the next is not being done because I am making allowances to do that. In other words, I didn't make provision to do that. He said, when I lost my temper, I didn't lose my temper because I made provision to do that. Because I thought, okay, about 15 minutes from now, I'm going to lose my temper. It wasn't because I got up in the morning and said, okay, I'm going to overeat today. Okay, I'm going to eat junk food today. Okay, I'm going to have four beers today. Okay, I'm going to go out and buy me an expensive little sports car today. He said, the things that I do, I don't do them because I allow myself to do them, because I make provision to them. He said, that's not how it happens. For what I would, that do I not. He said, I actually wanted to do something different, but I didn't do what I wanted to do. But what I hate, that do I. He said, I find myself... Hating to do carnal things. I find myself saying in my brain, hey, don't get drunk. Hey, don't take that drink. Hey, don't look at that nasty movie. He said, that's what my brain tells me. That's what my mama told me. That's what the preacher told me. That's what society tells me. I know I ought not do that. I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it anyhow. He said, I'm not allowing myself to do it. Something's happening here. It's running away with me. I can't control this thing. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that is good. He's back to his argument here. He said, look, if yesterday I didn't keep the law, I broke all of God's laws yesterday. He said, now you might look at me and say I don't respect the law. But he said, I want to tell you something. I wanted to obey the law. And he said, my failure to obey the law validates the law as much as if I kept it. My failure to obey the law says that I approved of the law. If I hadn't approved it, I wouldn't have tried to keep it. So the fact that I failed to keep it is not a statement that I reject its content. It's a statement that though I wanted to do it, something was more powerful in me than the persuasion of the law. You see, his argument is answering that Jewish mind who says, hey, you Gentiles don't keep the law, so you don't value it. He said, we want to keep it. Now, Paul's speaking on behalf of the whole human race. He was not a Gentile. Yes, we all want to keep the law. Uh, you go down to the prison. You, most people think of prisoners as diabolic, wicked, uh, uh, savage, cruel people. You know, uh, Ricker, he was a prisoner for a long time. And uh, he just is, I let him in my house today while I was taking a nap. And I didn't even lock the door, didn't, didn't cock my gun or anything. He just wandered around fixing things, going in and out, moving stuff around. I didn't, didn't give it one thought whatsoever. I absolutely trust him, you see. And I have a whole room full of 40, 45 guys down there. Uh, about half of them, that's all I trust right now. But I'd let about half of them wander around my house, you know, and me sleep. You say, why? Well, of course, they're Christians. But even when they're not Christians, I, I walked down the sidewalk there in the prison, and I, I walked up to a big group of big ugly ones yesterday, you know. 
And they were slapping each other around just kind of for fun, you know, just kind of cutting up and cussing each other and just carrying on with a bunch of foolishness and nonsense. I wasn't scared of them. One of them was big, man. He weighed 100 pounds more than me. I wasn't scared of them. I know that they're not just everything they do is not evil. I know that they have some camaraderie and little fellowship and they can like to jive, you know. And They're not just standing there thinking about hurting everybody they come across. They're not like that. I mean, you may have a six-time murderer there, but most of the people he meets, he treats them real friendly like. Now, he says, that which I would do, that do I not. If you talk to those guys, they'll tell you that after their second rape or second murder, they decide they wouldn't do it again. It was bad. And they tried not to, but the flesh got them. They'll tell you after their fourth or fifth rape, they repented and said, no, I won't do this anymore. I'm tired of this. This is the wrong thing. To do. I'm going to clean up my life. But then lust got to them. And they did it again and again and again. And some, when you catch them, sit them down. I've had old drunks. I've had old drunks sit down in front of me. And you talk to them about drinking. And they'll cry and pour their beer out and break their bottle right there in front of you. And before the sun's down, they'll have another bottle and be drinking it. If you walked up to a drunk and said, I got a pill here. If you take it, you won't ever, have to, won't ever want to drink again. Would you take it? I don't think you'd ever find one that wouldn't take it. Unless he's just half drunk, you know, want to get the rest of it. But he'd take it. Why? He wants to be free from it. If you went up to most sodomites and said, look, we've got a little operation here that will make you normal. Would you take it? <laughs> Not what you think. Most of I said normal. Most of them would take the operation. They'd take the cure. Their life is not gay. It's, it's miserable. And if you went to the prisons and you said to these guys, they get out, look, we can give you a little cure here that will make you uh, live in a little three-bedroom house, have a wife, raise kids, go to a job, go to church on Sunday and live a good life. Would you like to take this pill? There wouldn't be one out of a hundred wouldn't take the pill. Why? Because they want to do the right thing. But there's something inside of them that keeps them from doing the right thing thing and they'll all tell you that you don't need a bible to get that out of them you ask them where's the enemy at and they'll hit that chest and say inside here where's the problem it's in here now some of them you know they'll smart off and talk about society but when you get down to it they know where the problem is it's inside for if then I do that which I would not I consent under the law that is good now then it is no more I that do it but sin that dwelleth in me said this thing's gotten to the point where I have to confess. Since I didn't will to do it, I didn't plan to do it, I didn't make provision to do it, and yet I'm doing it, I have to say it's not me doing it. It's something inside of me doing it. In spite of what I want to do, I'm doing it. For I know that in me, parentheses, that is in my flesh. Oh, oh, there it is. I know that in me, where, particularly where is he talking about in me? That is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Now, most commentators won't say, well, Paul is saying because he's a Christian now, it's just in his old nature that there's no good thing. But in his new nature, there is a, a good thing. That's total nonsense. For one thing, nowhere in the Bible does it ever speak of an old nature or a new nature. Not once. Not once. There's no such thing as a sinful nature in the Bible. That is a figment of some theologian's imagination. Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. If you take a new international version, a new international perversion of the Bible, they will translate it at this passage, in my sinful nature dwelleth no good thing. 
And you know, the Greek word there is sarx, the same Greek word that's used 143 times every single time the word flesh is used, absolutely consistent, no change, no different. In my flesh, the same flesh that dies, that rots, that gets burnt, that's crucified, the same flesh that rots with disease, the same flesh that gets leprosy in it, that flesh that you dress, that flesh that dies and tears in the grave, it's that flesh that dwells no good thing. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. What did he say? To will is present with me. Now, this sinner said, my will is present. What does that mean? That means his will was working, right? So Luther's bondage to the will looks like the only thing that was in bondage was Luther's mind. Because Paul's will as a sinner was operative. There's no such thing as a sinner whose will is inoperative. All human beings have an operative will. Paul proves that by saying that he will not to sin even though he was sinning. The will was present with me. How to perform that which is good I find. It. He said I don't find the strength to apply this will and do what I want to do. So it was not an inoperative will, it was an enslaved will. Let's say it another way. It was a will overcome by stronger force. You see, when I take this bottle that weighs about two pounds, and I pick it up, I have defied the law of gravity, right? If I turn it loose, what happens? It falls, right? Now, has the law of gravity ceased working? I'm holding up in there. No, it's still working. It's a greater law overcoming the law of gravity. The will of a man is always there with a given drive or desire. The fact that the will is overcome by the lust in the body does not say that the will has ceased to function. It says that there's a power present in the person stronger than his will, which power is the lust of the flesh to indulge. For the good that I would, I do not. The good that I would, there's his will, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that do I. If then I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. What we've got to ask is, sin that dwelleth in me, in me where? That's the question, right? He says, no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwelleth. In me. You see, this thing that was causing him to sin was not him because he already described himself as his mind, his will, and his emotions as committed to doing the right thing. Didn't he? His mind, his will, his emotions, that's the soul, was already on the side of right doing. But there was something in him more powerful than his mind, will, and his emotions, which was in him causing him to sin. So he says, no longer I, but sin that dwelleth in me. So it was opposite to I. It was not I, it's not sinful I doing this. It's I controlled by sinful it. What is the it? It's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. In me where? We've already been told, haven't we? In the flesh. He'll tell us again. Look at it. I find then a law that when I do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now, again, we come to one of those words that's misused. 
The Bible speaks of the inward man, I think, three times. And in all cases, the inward man, if you look this up in the Greek, the word inward means like inside. And man means like self or person or humanoid. And so inward man means like the inside of the man. The man on the inside. Isn't that profound? Inward man. That's deep right there. I mean, you have to search a long time to figure that out. The inward man. Now, the Bible speaks of the outward man in contrast to the inward man. Now, guess what the outward man is? That's the man that's on the outside. The outward man is the man you can see. The inner man is the man you can't see. The outer man is the body of flesh. The inner man is the soulish self. It's that simple. And see, the old man and the new man are not the same as the outer man and the inner man. Does an unsaved man have an outer man and an inner man? Yes, he does. Does a saved man have an outer man and an inner man? Yes, he does. So this is the substance of self. The physical and the metaphysical part, the composite of these two essences that make up humanity on the earth. Christ was an outer man and an inner man. His outer man died on the cross. His inner man went into the heart of the earth. His inner man was raised, joined his outer man. The outer man and the inner man together came and met the apostles and ascended up into heaven. And his outer man sits on the right hand of God. And his inner man came back in the Holy Ghost and dwells in our hearts by faith. And one day that inner man will raise us from the dead. And we will be joined to our outer man and be made all new in a new and a glorified body. And the outer man and the inner man will be one, joined together, fixed throughout eternity. Why? Because the outer man, the old outer man, was circumcised away and crucified. And the new outer man has been glorified and ascended into heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all really simple if you just follow the scripture through carefully. He said, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. What's that? What is he saying? He said, I, Paul, as a unregenerate sinner here and representing all of humanity he said I delight in the law of God he said well I can't believe that'd be an unsaved man how could an unsaved man delight in the law of God what Paul tell us in the book of Philippians about his condition before he got regenerated he said I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees he said concerning the righteousness which was in the law I was blameless did Paul delight in the law of God before he got saved absolutely sure he did did the Pharisees delight in the law of God? Absolutely. If you go up to an Orthodox Jew today, does he delight in the law of God? I mean, I sat in Jerusalem and talked to them. They delight in the law of God. They just think it's wonderful. They're absolutely tickled with the law of God. It's their center of their whole life. Their whole existence surrounds the law of God. They can name off the 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament. And then they've got three additional books that break that down into hundreds and thousands of more laws. And they know them and they discuss them and they delight in them and their life is built around them. Paul said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. As an unsaved person, many people delight in the law of God. There are people who go to church and quote the commandments and preach it and teach it to their children and love the truth of the law of God. And they're lost. They've never been saved. That's not a sign of salvation to delight in the law of God. A sign of salvation is to live it. He says, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law. Another law in my 
members. When he says law, he's speaking like a rule of action. It's not something law given from Mount Sinai. He said another law different. There's actually about seven different laws in these two chapters. There's another law working in my members, warring against thee. Here's another law of my mind. There's a third one. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. There's another law which is in my members. So he said, here's this law of God. But while the law of God calls me to righteousness, I have a law of sin working in my members. And there's a law of sin and death which is going to damn me. And he said, this law of my mind, which is my mind saying, do the law of God. This law of my mind is overcome by the law of sin dwelling in my members. So there's this ruling principle of my mind that says, do the law of God. But there's this law of sin in my members which overcomes this law of God in my mind. So I don't end up doing the law of God. I end up doing the law of sin. So he said, there's this struggle between these different factors in my being. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, we've looked up members. Members are parts of the physical body. Never are members anything other than the parts of your physical body. A man could pluck out his eye and he plucks out one of his members and he enters into heaven with missing a member. A man sins, he cuts off his hand and he enters into heaven with one member missing. The Bible uses members several times, always in reference just to the physical parts of your body. Never anything else. He said, sin dwells in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. He cries out the cry of the human race. That point of despair. When a man has yielded himself to the law, applied his mind, his motions, his will, done his very best to please God. And realizes that there's something controlling him beyond his own willpower. It is the lust. Dwelling in the members of his fleshly body. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the what body of sin? He's talking about the human body that God created Adam in. The body of sin. Who's going to deliver me from it? Now, he is not yet going to tell you about the deliverance, but he's going to introduce it. He said, I thank God. Now, does that strike you as is odd. Have you noticed that this chapter has not been about God, the Holy Spirit, redemption, the blood, justification, sanctification, the death with Christ, burial, resurrection? Do you notice that this chapter has been nothing but a description of carnal man sold under sin without a stitch of strength to accomplish anything at all? That's all it's been about. He said, where's this deliverance going to come from? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where it'll come from. Period. So he has a concluding sentence. Now this so then is a summation. That's not a summation of the preceding sentence. It's a summation of the entire chapter. The entire thought. So then, with a mind, I myself serve the law of God. Now, when he says with a mind, I serve the law of God, we know from what he said what he means by that. He means that in his mind, his will, his commitment, he was committed to doing the law of God. But with the flesh, 
He serves the law of sin. So there was a law of his mind which said, do the law of God. With the law of his mind, he served the law of God. But with his flesh, he was serving the law of sin. I submit unto you, if this is a saved man, we need what the Methodists call a second work of grace. <laughs> if this is a saved man, then Paul sure messed up in his argument to the Jews. He's trying to prove the superiority of the gospel over the law. Man, this is a bad time to admit the church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> this is a bad time to admit the gospel doesn't work. This is a bad time to say, look, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, but I just want you to know, I never do the right thing. <laughs> Listen, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I was called out to take the gospel to those that never heard, but I just want you to know, I get up every morning with my mind made up to do the right thing, and I never do it. I'm carnal, sold under sin. Oh, yes, with my mind, I'm serving God, but boy, I sneak around with this flesh and sin every chance I get, and it's all the time. I'm enslaved to this body. Don't tell anybody. But I just never do the right thing. You will go through my 30 commentaries on Romans and you won't find any. But what all of them believe, what I just said. That mockery I just made. That's what they all believe. That this is Paul's saved but struggling and can't overcome sin. Folks, that, I, ju I just throw my Bible away if I believe that's all the gospel was. I just discard it. You'd have to believe that all these people in America that walk down an aisle at a crusade and confess Jesus as Savior are just Christians that never got followed up. <laughs> like one preacher said, baptize them quick. They may never come back. Now, when God saves a soul, he saves a body. Amen. Why? Because he crucifies the body at salvation. And he takes the man out of the body and puts him in the spirit. Turn to Romans 8. I'm going to give you a preview and sum this up. Romans chapter 8. Verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh. Is that what Romans 7 was about? So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Is that Romans 7? Sure is, isn't it? But ye are not in the flesh. Ye, believers, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. You either have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you belong to Christ, and you're not in the flesh, or you're in the flesh, and you're lost. You're either in Romans chapter 7 on your way to hell, or you're in Romans chapter 8. Six and eight, free from sin. All right, next week we'll take up, Lord willing, with chapter eight and uh, probably take several.